we have to confront and ultimately be compassionate with our own minds. This is an essential element to good leadership because those who hold power, either by dint of their bodies or by economic status or by their organizational status, those who hold power who are not committed to doing radical self-inquiry are more likely than not to spread toxic and toxicity. To be human is to suffer. And so to be human and to rise above suffering and to live into our birthright as basically good beings, we need to see the suffering of ourselves and each other so that we can be compassionate with each other. I think that many of the people that we would ascribe to as powerful business leaders are in fact suffering. And because they don't know what to do with suffering, they cause violence. This episode of the Kintsugi Podcast is brought to you by Pause, Breathe, Reflect, which can help you bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. Hey there, like-hearted humans. It's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsuki Podcast. This week's story of connection is hopeful, urgent, a call to action, and earnest. And it will definitely make you think. Our guest is a husband, a father, a brother, a son. Of course, he's a like-hearted human like you. He's a difference maker, and he's a co-conspirator in creating more trust, safety, and belonging in this world, which is something I believe at least 98% of us desire. Here at the Kintsugi Podcast, and in my coaching community, and of course, our app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, we believe everyone belongs. Regardless of where you live, where you came from, how much money you make, If you pray or who you pray to, who you love, who you voted for, none of it matters because everyone belongs here. Because all of our stories can be found in all of us. Because we're all connected. And our guest has written something beautiful that's all about connection. And it aligns wonderfully with Kintsugi. It's called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing for Belonging. And I can't wait to share it with you. So if you're ready, settle into a comfortable position, take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out and enjoy connecting with Jerry Colonna. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's a delight to be here with you. So how are you? And, you know, Michael, it's a bittersweet thing to write something that feels super important at this time 
And there's a part of me that wishes just a little bit that it wasn't so needed. I feel that. I feel that. I felt that as I read through it. And so that holding space for joy and happiness and fulfillment and gratitude. And hope. And hope. Yeah, hope and optimism, two good things. But also feeling the pain of what's happening on the world stage, what's happening domestically here as we sit in the U.S. and in our local communities. And knowing that, although we may not know, there's probably a lot of pain in some of our neighbors' homes because they're going through whatever they happen to be going through. I'll start off and I'll thank you for writing this book, Reunion. Loved it. I followed your work since the early days of my coaching experience, uh, shortly before you wrote Reboot. We'll get into that. So I feel lucky to sit down with you to talk about this work because this work, as you point out, is needed, although we wish it wasn't. So when you write a book, it's a labor, it's a labor of love. And what jumped out at me, and I say this as a father of two daughters, that in a lot of ways, I felt like the book was written for all of us, but it was also written for your daughter, Emma. Don't make me cry. Oh, I'll cry too. We're going to cry together because I read the passage. It's in the beginning of the book on June 3rd, 2020, and the Brooklyn Bridge, and I live right outside of New York City, so I remember this day quite vividly. I think most Americans remember this day, maybe not the experience on the Brooklyn Bridge, but your daughter's on the bridge and a peaceful, peaceful protest turns, turns dangerous. And I was hoping you could bring us to that moment because if I understand correctly, it was a moment that sparked this book, obviously, along with, we can't forget, the murder of George Floyd and how his life was stolen, his breath was taken away. But I want to sort of ground us, sir, in this moment because I see this as a almost as an honoring to your daughter, because I believe our kids make us better humans. And you write about this in Reboot through that in order to be better leaders, we need to be better humans. Yeah. So you can see from my pausing and, and the look in my eyes that you've hit the sweet spot. And first I'll say I did write this book, in a sense, in honor of my daughter, but also in fulfillment of a deep wish I have, which is to be the ancestor that my descendants deserve. And I will take us to, to that moment. You're right. In June of 2020, my daughter was part of the 5,000 people or so in Brooklyn, but the millions of people around the world who in the middle of a damn pandemic, pandemic, where I was terrified to leave the safety of my home, she was compelled by her commitment to social justice to put her body on the line and to join with so many people to protest the murder of George Floyd. There's this moment where she's texting me and I'm texting her back instructions on what to do when the pepper spray flies. And there's, a, there's this following moment where I realize that as a white, straight, cis man with the power and privilege that come implicitly from this body, I was safe. And my biracial daughter, she identifies as Asian and white, was out in the streets. and. 
I said to myself, you're right. When I wrote Reboot, I crystallized a belief system, which I think we share, which is that better humans make better leaders. And what started at that point was a journey into the definition of what does it actually mean to be a better human, especially in a world filled with hatred and systemic othering and a kind of violence perpetuated against people for who they love, for how they worship, for how they identify, for their bodies, for their economic status, for how they vote, for whether or not they're native to the land that they're living in. And the result is reunion. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Again, I asked that question from one father to another. We participated in protests here in New Jersey, but they weren't at the scale of the one in Brooklyn, and they were peaceful. The police weren't. The police weren't called in. So when I read that, and I reread that, so thank you for sharing. At that point in our history, for me, again, white, straight, male, cisgender, like you, that summer, I felt, this feels different. Eric Gardner, Breonna Taylor, and a whole host of names that we do not know because they're not reported on. There was something about this moment, and maybe it was because it was in the pandemic and we all had to pause or stop and notice. I felt it was different. And as we sit here at the end of 2023, I feel like we're right back where we used to be. And, you know, as you were writing this through the pandemic and just trying to find connection with your elders and yourself and the broader community. How do you see things now, especially as your book comes out? And maybe if you have a thought on what do you think happened? Do we have it in us to stick in this work, to the work that really has no end? And you write about that we can't neglect. So I was hoping you could share a little bit of thoughts about that. So I'm glad you you referenced the work that we can't neglect. And that phrase comes from a quote that I open the second to last chapter of the book, chapter seven, with, which is uh, a quote from the Talmud, which goes roughly, it is not yours to complete the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect the work. And that is from Rabbi Tarfin. And I read that actually in a novel written in 1938 in Germany about the experience of a Jewish family as the horror of Nazism takes deeper and deeper hold and the implications for the whole family. And I read that while I was in the midst of writing this book. And I realized that there was something profoundly important in that Talmudic teaching. And You know, one of the most meaningful for me points that I try to make in the book is to draw the through line between anti-Black racism, anti-Asian hate, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, transphobia, patriarchy, anti-immigration feelings. Unfortunately, the list goes on and on. The denial of civil and human and healthcare rights. And to try to show that all of these experiences are related and that there's a through line of systemic othering that leads to, just in the time 
in which I wrote this book. From the summer of 2020 through, I handed the manuscript in in January 23. Almost 17,000 children in the United States were shot, murdered, or injured, and that gun violence is the number one cause of death for children. One of the most profoundly important, for me, experiences was to realize that these things are all related and that it actually serves the very systems we seek to dismantle to see these things as not related. And the last thing I'll say is you ask about these times. I see this more clearly now than ever before. And I see that there is a relationship and that there are actually forces of evil that benefit from our not seeing the interconnectedness between these things. Because that perpetuates intergenerational trauma and violence against each other. And... I guess, to Rabbi Tarfun's point. And so it goes, right? Here we are again. Yeah, here we are again. And the one thing we cannot do is look away. We cannot hide behind the structures that say, well, but this happened or this happened or, well, what about this or what about this? No, we actually have to see it all. Yeah, the whole notion of why can't those other people do what I did? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps or my ancestors did when they came over. Why can't those other people do just what we did? Why are they whining so much? Right, right. Or, you know, as you know from reading the book, I talk a lot about my ancestors and I often think of not only my grandfather Guido, my mother's father, but I also think of my mother's mother who came through Ellis Island and she was a young girl. And I imagine her waiting anxiously as to whether or not she was going to pass the health test. And again, to be clear, this is before the very strict immigration rules of 1920s were put in place. And every time I think of her now, I think of a mother from, say, Venezuela on the southern border of the United States trying to lift her baby over razor wire in the Rio Grande. Because I know my grandmother, had she had a baby, she would have lifted that baby over razor wire into safety, into what she perceived as safety. So I struggle to see a difference between, at this point, I struggle to see a difference between my ancestors and the people I see all around me now. Well, you share about this in Reunion. My story is your story. And it's really an invitation to say, do you see my humanity in your humanity, our humanness in each other? And so it gets to the what you just talked about, awareness, you know, becoming aware. And so the events in, in the summer of 2020 was a spark of awareness. Like you can't unsee it and just said this. We cannot go back into our phones or go back into the system that we're comfortable with and stop seeing what we know is out there. And going back to some of the work I think Jane Elliott did, the question she asked, who would trade places? You know, so the Caucasian people in this room, would you trade places with any of your black brothers and sisters? And some of the clips I've seen over the years, no one raises their hand. No one stands up. So we we intellectually know. What's going on? So in your work, you talk about radical self-inquiry 
And also just the question that you're sort of famous for that you pulled the thread on in this book. I was hoping you could share both as a way to start becoming more aware. So we start with ourselves. We try to connect with ourselves sort of in that spirit of kintsugi. We want to come back together. The other part of the question for you is this whole remembering aspect of it. I know you're a Buddhist, so mindfulness is probably part of your life, I imagine. And one definition of mindfulness is to remember, is to come back home, come back to your center. And I want to give you some space to share this part of it, because it all starts with having awareness and accepting what we see in ourselves and what we might see in others. So there's a lot in your question. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) That's all right. I'll tease it out almost the way my thought process sort of unfolded. So I wrote a, a book previous to this book. I wrote a book. This book is Reunion. I wrote a book called Reboot. And that book came out in 2019. And as you noted before, one of the basic premises of that book is that better humans make better leaders. And and that book is written retrospectively. I use my own story as a way to model what I think is an essential part of our process of becoming a better human and therefore a better leader. And that process I dubbed many years ago radical self-inquiry. It was a way for me to sort of write a phrase that would encompass the decades of work I did at psychoanalysis and the calluses that are on my tukas from having sat for so long in meditation. And there's something deeply important about both of those processes because they kind of inform each other. And so I called it radical self-inquiry as it to describe the process by which the mask that we wear, even in front of ourselves, are slowly and compassionately stripped away so that there's no place left to hide. We have to, when we sit on the cushion, we have to confront and ultimately be compassionate with our own minds. This is an essential element to good leadership Because those who hold power, either by dint of their bodies or by economic status or by their organizational status, those who hold power who are not committed to doing radical self-inquiry are more likely than not to spread toxic and toxicity throughout the organizations and to have that negative effect roll down to people who have less power. And my famous question, which you reference, which I developed coming out of psychoanalysis, was how have I been complicit, not responsible, for creating the conditions I say I do not want in my life? So if you take everything that I just said, that's sort of part one. And in part one, it's, it's the basis of my own inner analysis, my fearless analysis of what are the parts of me that I've dismembered? What are the parts of me that I've thrown in my shadow? What are the things that I choose not to know about myself that then will rear their ugly heads and wreak havoc in my family, in my organizations, and my life in general? And always at the most inopportune time. Yeah, that's kind of the way the unconscious tends to work, right? Yes, yeah, the universe has a 
wicked sense of humor from time to time. Yeah, yeah. So that, as a basis, ended up uh, resulting in Reboot, a memoir-like experience for people, where I'm talking about some of the most painful aspects of how I became who I am. Then the book goes out in the world, and a funny thing happens on the way to the forum. Okay, that's an old joke. (laughs) That's a good one. A funny thing happened when I'm on the book tour, and that was that person after person after person from all these different walks of life come up to me and say, some version of your story is my story. Now, what they didn't say, Michael, was my story is your story. They actually responded to me going first by connecting to the story that I shared. And all of a sudden, I found myself having these incredible conversations, one of which I detail in the book with a friend named Joy Tende Kingari, who is originally from Zimbabwe, whom I met in Ireland, who is a barrister in the city of Dublin. Okay, just a sort of context. And I begin to realize that as important as that original work is of radical self-inquiry, there's this really powerful experience of, perhaps you felt it, Michael, you read this book and you say, holy moly, it's not just me. This person too worries about being loved, feeling safe, and that they belong. Just like me, they're motivated by these things. That then morphed as I sought to respond to my daughter's admonition by way of her protest and directly by her holding me accountable, saying, Dad, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be a co-conspirator. To realize that the question starts to alter and it becomes, how have I been complicit, not responsible, and how have I benefited from the conditions in the world I say I do not want to see? And most importantly, what would I like to give up? What am I willing to give up that I love, like power and safety, in order to see the change that I want to see? So Reboot leads to Reunion when we step outside the meat bag of us, the meat sack of us, and start to realize that there's a mother at the Rio Grande lifting her child over rays of wire because she wants her child to be safe just like my grandmother. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow, releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay. Now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're a human after all. 
But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. When I read the passage about joy in the beginning of the book and also what she wrote at the end of the book, I thought of the Zulu concept of uh, Ubuntu. I am Mm -hmm. because you are, I am because we are. Again, just another variation or another take on we're all, we're all connected. So like the Aspen trees in the Rockies, we, I look at our central nervous system. So when I see it, I see a root system because to me, it looks like roots. And this root system, like each Aspen has its own roots, but they're all connected. And like our central nervous systems are all connected to each other's central nervous systems. And so if one Aspen is harmed or hurting or diseased or however you want to say it, it can ripple. They all feel it. I think we all feel it. You know, we're carrying around so much pain. And as I rode my bike across the country in 2022, wow, did I feel it. Like I've, you know, as I rode through the Mountain West and we stopped at Sacagawea's grave, I felt it there because it was relatively unmarked. You had to work to see it. And as we rode through another part of the country, so that part of our original sin in this country, along with our relationship with slavery, those two things, God, I just felt that pain as I traveled from the West Coast to the East Coast. So, uh, you know, it's all all right there for us. You know, I was talking to Sharon Salzberg, my uh, Buddhist teacher, last night. And what came to mind right now when you were describing your journey across the United States uh, was something that we talked about last night, which was that when we aspire to have what we call awakened heart, bodhicitta, open heart, what we're inviting in is to feel the suffering, aren't we? To feel the pain. And it's only through opening up to that, which kind of sucks, by the way, because it hurts. Yeah, it's not pleasant. It's so much easier for someone who looks like you and looks like me with our status and our privilege, which then became a lightning rod word because people were uncomfortable with talking about this topic, dealing with the pain, but privilege nevertheless. It would be easy for us to be like, we're good. Yeah, what's the problem? What's the problem? Like, I don't see, life's pretty good. Yeah. And you know what? There's, you know, there's the myth of the meritocracy, right? Think about the Supreme Court ruling striking down affirmative action, for example, in, in higher education. There's this notion that when you look at those questions from the vantage point that we have, it's quite easy to convince oneself intellectually that we live in a meritocracy. But of course we don't. No. The system was built for some of us, not all of us. As Langston Hughes wrote in that poem, let America be America again, for it was never America for me. 
And the truth is that America has never been America for all. It's been America for some. Yeah, we've only, to tap into Rumi's guest house, we've only allowed certain visitors to come to our guest house. That's right. The acceptable ones. Yes. So I do want to ask this. I want to transition into work and leadership, because that's also part of the title of Reunion. I have a theory, and I spent 22 years in corporate America before becoming a coach and a meditation teacher. We here in the States, in the West, we over-index our lives on work. So it might be optimism on my part or naivete that if we can change how we work together, we might be able to change how we live together because our society is based on commerce and corporations and work. So knowing that corporate life is still dominated by white men, white straight men, cisgender men, and it's been this way since the beginning of time, and they are primarily responsible, we are primarily responsible for creating this othering. And you talk about the pain that we all feel. So the thing I struggle is like, so here we are, we have white guys sort of set up in the systems built for them. They have a lot of the status and power and income and all this. Where's all their pain coming from that they're downloading onto others? Does that make sense? Like, I think I understand what you're asking, yeah. You know, it's just, we can hopefully appreciate the pain Black members of our society, Indigenous people feel, others, as we've gone through the list. We can have that conversation and say, okay, all right, we understand. There's some awareness. But it seems like white men seem to be downloading a lot of the pain onto others and creating this othering. And... I'm just curious as to your perspective of that. I might have it wrong. I might have it partially right, but I didn't know if you could comment. First of all, on, on the premise, I mean, you know, the, the numbers are indisputable in terms of the dominance of certain demographics in, say, corporate structures. That is true. But I want to be a little bit more expansive because the problem to me isn't a particular demographic white men, white straight men, as much as it's the phenomena of dominance. And in our context, that is the dominant narrative structure. White men, patriarchy, white supremacy, in that way. But this phenomena is not limited to just that construct. So that's an important understanding. And so if we zoom out just a little bit and see this as a human problem. And then we can possibly arrive at a human answer, which is that we are all, each of us, every single one of us, called to do the inner work. My friend Rhonda McGee calls it the inner work of racial justice. We are all called to do our inner work of growing up. The subtitle of my first book is Leadership in the Art of Growing Up. We are all, regardless of where we sit in the dominant structures of our societies, called to grow up, to face that which we have chosen not to face, our historical pain, our suffering. You know, my, my friend and teacher Parker Palmer called, says, violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering, right? And so each of us, each of us, regardless of our place in our society, is called to look at our own suffering 
so that we can see the suffering of others, which then draws us into the interbeingness of all of us. You know, as a Buddhist, you'll recall the story of the woman who has lost her child that goes to see the Buddha. And in the story that I have internalized, he is trying to console her and he gives her the instruction to visit every home in the village and take from each home that has not experienced loss a mustard seed and to come back. And of course, she comes back empty-handed. And the thing that I like about that story is not that the Buddha is chastising her to say everybody's suffering, but what he's saying is the experience of the universality of that suffering brings us closer and closer into humanity. To be human is to suffer. And so to be human and to rise above suffering and to live into our birthright as basically good beings, we need to see the suffering of ourselves and each other so that we can be compassionate with each other. And that, I think, is what's lost in business. I know, I know, that's a strange segue. No, that's a good one. I like it. I think it is lost. I think we're rushing through our lives where we, it's hard to see and appreciate love and hear each other when we're going so quickly. And my feeling about the pandemic was it forced us globally to pause, to slow down and see each other. We all put on masks, but we had an opportunity, probably one of the best ones in our lifetime, to start seeing each other and learn. For me, it was a big period of time of unlearning, unbecoming, getting comfortable with not knowing. So, But the pace of business is quick, as you know, the work that you do, the work you've done. It's fast. It's easy to blow past people and think of our relationships as these transactional resources on the way to better shareholder equity. Yeah, and you know, I I do not want to do is generalize those who hold power in corporations. You know, as I wrote about in Reboot, I went very fast. And as I described, I mistook motion for meaning. For whatever reason, I'm wired to seek out the causes and conditions of suffering. And I think that many of the people that we would ascribe to as powerful business leaders are in fact suffering. And because they don't know what to do with suffering, they cause violence. And because of what they've been taught to do with suffering, which is to stuff it down, to move fast. And you know, I hang out with a lot of folks in Silicon Valley, the phrase is move fast and break things. But the truth is it's move fast and break people, right? Because that's what they've been taught will ease their suffering, they believe it. Sure. Until some crisis happens, a pandemic happens, a collapse happens, and then they realize, wait, wait, I've been sold a bill of goods. Yes, you have. When you think about the coming together, the reunion, much like broken pottery comes back together and it forms kintsugi, I know we're all on our different paths and we all have a different recipe for this. The Urishi is the lacquer that brings the pottery back together. Do you have recommendations for people? Obviously, it starts with this radical self-inquiry, these questions, or almost like living and sitting with the questions as a start, because we can't afford to wait for another George Floyd moment. Like we, 
we have to find a way to make progress here and not get caught up in like the the big the big moments and it's like shoot up and then shoot down it's like we making steady progress so do you have recommendations for folks leaders using a broad umbrella because i know that's how you use it on how to begin this healing process the, the process of coming back together yeah so reunion as a book is organized in two parts the first part broadly speaking might be seeking the answer to the question to whom do i belong and in seeking the answer to that question i suggest trying to understand what I call the real story of our ancestors, not the myth of their resilience. Because many of us, especially with ancestors from Europe, buy into this resiliency myth that, that can feed into the, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as you cited before. Why can't you? And to augment that story, those stories that we tell with some reality, well, what were the conditions that they left? What were the conditions that they experienced when they arrived? How might they have turned that experience into their own systemic othering of others? Corollary process, and we've been talking about this, is what is it about my family, for example? What do we not talk about? You cited the essays in the afterward, and you cited Joy Tende's essay. Well, I'll also cite my colleague Virginia's essay, Virginia Bauman, who identifies as queer, as a woman. And she talks about her family and their Swiss origins and how important her family tree was to the family. They were very proud of it. And she just asked a simple question, what happened to her queer ancestors? Because we don't talk about that, right? Like uh, Lin-Manuel wrote, for the Disney movie Encanto. We don't talk about Bruno. Yeah, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about any of that stuff. We don't talk about the mentally ill in our family tree. We don't talk about those who committed suicide in our family tree. Alcoholism, we don't talk. We don't talk. Nope, nope, we don't talk about that. And so part of this process is to remember hyphen those who have been dismembered so that we can see more fully the fullness of to whom do we belong, including ourselves. What parts of me do I not want to talk about? Because if we are going to endeavor to do the second part of this work, the most important part of this work, which is to contribute meaningfully to a world of systemic belonging, if we don't do that first work, we run the profound risk of being performative. And nothing can hurt us quite as much as performative allyship, where we mouth the words, but make no change in our actions. Yeah, we post during Black History Month, we post on International Women's Day. The LinkedIn feeds are full of support. And then the day after comes, and we have an opportunity to show up and be a co-conspirator, continue to do that. If we don't, then we are being performative. That's right. That's right. And we are setting back the effort that is so vitally important right now to create dialogue, to create conversation, to hear our way into each other's stories and to claim kinship. Your story is my story. Joy Tende 
the black identifying Zimbabwean immigrant to Ireland who every day experiences the reality of that identity, who can look across a room at this white, Italian, Irish kid from Brooklyn and say, yeah, you're just like me. From that place, we can create policies and procedures. From that place, we can endeavor to build inclusive organizations. From that place of empathetically bridged and connected, we endeavor to look at our organizations and say, do people feel loved? Do they feel safe? Do they know that they belong? The trifecta of the human experience, love, safety, and belonging. Absolutely. When you mentioned kinship brought me to kindness, they're connected. We talk about kindness all the time. I talk about rippling kindness. The root of kindness is kinship. Like, you know, we see each other in each other. So when you go forth and write a book, there's always an editing process. Uh-huh, there is indeed. Much to my chagrin. <laughs> yeah, so the question I love to ask every author, is there something that was removed from the book that you wish now in hindsight you included as the book has come out and you've talked about it with people? It was like, oh man, man, I should have kept that in there. Well, I, I love that you asked this question, so, so I get to vent a little bit. 30% of the book was cut, 30% of the script was cut, and that happened at a time when I was watching this, this brilliant documentary on the relationship between the editor, I forget his name, and the author, Bob Caro, who wrote The Power Broker. And there's this one moment in which the uh, documentary reveals that the editor cut one million words from the manuscript. Holy cow. <laughs> so to put it in perspective, reunion is about 68,000 words. <laughs> so me complaining about 30,000, the 30% being cut. Um, anyway, do I wish that it was... Uh, this this one little bitty section that maybe, and it had to do with, you know, as you know, Michael, you've read the book, so you know that the book goes into a deep discussion about my father and his experience having been adopted and my relationship with those facts. And there was this this scene, which based on true life, in which I I and my siblings are attending my father's death. And he died when I was 30. I, I turned 60 in two weeks. And there was a real experience of my disappointment, my anger at my father. And that was cut. In hindsight, do I wish it was in? Maybe. I think my editor did a phenomenal job of making the book better by cutting that which was not reunion. And that said, those passages are saved for the next book. So <laughs> that's what I tell myself, at least. Well, I appreciate you sharing, and I can't wait for the next book. Thank you. So we'll get you off into the world on three questions related to connection. My wife and I love a good couple's origin story. So how did you and your partner meet? And a side question is, who is the biggest modern English fan, you or her? 
<laughs> you really read the acknowledgments. <laughs> I read the book, man. Like, I want to honor your work. I read the book. Allie and I, uh, who's my wife now, uh, she wasn't my wife when I'd written the book. We got married in September. Allie and I first met in April or May. She just yelled at me in my head of 2013 when I was giving a talk in Boulder and I was imploring the folks in the audience to get out from behind their screens and go for a hike because for God's sake, you live in God's country, Colorado. And so she tweeted at me, uh, want to go for a hike? And so how could I say no? But the wonderful thing is that our relationship began as a creative partnership in establishing the company. So first we started doing some work together, then we actually co-founded Reboot, the company. And then it evolved into more. It was that creativity and the partnership, which very much is part of our relationship. Ali is a bigger fan of modern English than I am, but how that shows up, I will keep in the couple bubble. That's okay. You, I don't want to pry. That's a, it felt like a couple shorthand type of thing. And we're just going to keep it that way because some things are just best kept that way. But I wanted to acknowledge that I caught it and it was bravo. I, I thought it was well done, well played. So at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about Emma. I'm assuming she's read the book. She has. What did she say? She's incredibly proud of me. She's engaged to a delightful young man who is Jewish, and we are living in a time of profound anti-Semitism. And it was helpful to her to understand that when and if God blesses them and they have children, that responding to a world of systemic othering is incredibly important. And to be clear, all three of my children, Sam, Michael, and Emma, are incredibly proud of their father, who puts his labors and his money where his mouth is. Yeah, thank you. I'm proud to follow you and to um, listen to your wisdom from my distance here in New Jersey. So uh, thanks for sharing that, Cherry. One last question. So this is uh, an alter altered question from the great James Lipton inside the actor's studio. Being a New Yorker, I think you know the show. I do. <laughs> I love that show. And and of course, the other version of it, Between the Ferns, but keep going. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is a great show. So I'm going to digress here a little bit. There was a, a really good SNL skit way back, I think in 2017, using the word complicit. So look that up. So when, when I hear the word complicit, <laughs> I think of you. I also think of this skit. So I'm going to let you Google that. I will. But we'll come back to the question. So one of the questions that James would ask at the end, again, I'll change, change a bit. So let's assume there's an afterlife and there's heaven. And when you get to heaven or the afterlife, you get to meet your elders. What do you hope they'll say to you when you meet them? Oh, it's, it's very, very clear that they're proud of me, that they look down and something that uh, my therapist, my psychoanalyst, my first psychoanalyst, Dr. Sayers, used to say to me all the time, not bad considering, not bad considering. <laughs> 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 
that's a vote of confidence. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take it. You'll take any compliment you can get. That's good. Well, thanks for coming on. And thanks for writing this book and sharing your story and, and helping us reconnect in a more beautiful form, just like Kintsugi. So, Jerry, thank you. Well, thank you, Michael. And, and what I'll say is, uh, you know, I'm on the circuit. And sometimes when you're on the circuit, you discover kins. And I just discovered a kin. Thank you for your close reading of the book. Thank you for the work that you're doing and that you've dedicated your life to. You know, as I often say to folks who have followed me into the world of coaching, welcome to the Avengers. Okay, our work matters. Absolutely. And uh, I am absolutely convinced you're a fabulous coach. Thank you. So thank you for doing the work you do. You're welcome. And a happy early birthday. Oh, thank you. Good to see you. We'll talk soon. You got it. Wonderful to see you, my friend. Hey there, it's Michael. I'm back. And we've reached the point in this week's story where I have to say, I'm not crying. You're crying. What Jerry just shared means so much to me because I followed his career since the early days of my coaching journey. And today, I have even more respect for him because he didn't have to write Reunion. He doesn't have to share this message because his life is pretty good. By sharing Reunion with the world, he is taking on risk. Because not everybody wants to hear this message. It's provocative because it's challenging the status quo, the current system that was built for the few and not all of us. Of course, in our Kintsugi spirit, we all have a few imperfections. Before we hit record, Jerry and I had a friendly debate on what side of the Hudson River, New York or New Jersey, has the best pizza and bagels. Now, he thinks it's New York, but we all know the right answer is New Jersey. But given his message, I do believe we can create some space that embraces all different types of pizza, even Chicago deep dish and all types of bagels, even blueberry. As you might know, here on the Kintsugi Podcast, we love to do a short meditation, just two minutes, to help us embody this week's story. So you're invited to join us for a practice to cultivate belonging. When you're ready, come into a comfortable posture. You can close your eyes if you feel safe. Otherwise, you can keep them open. And we'll drop in. We'll begin with a few healthy inhales and nice, slow, 
Releasing exhales. Allowing yourself to settle into this moment. And as you do, extending gratitude to Jerry for sharing his story and his message of reunion and the importance of belonging. I invite you now to visualize that you're part of a circle. It could be this community or a community closer to your home. And as you visualize being part of this circle, bring forward a sense of belonging, knowing that there's strength in this circle that all eyes can see all eyes in the circle. There's no hierarchy. Acknowledging that we all come into our circle with our own lived experiences, our own story. And these stories can be found in your story. Feel this connection with those in your circle. Begin to cultivate an energy of belonging that comes from when we truly see each other. All right. Nice job. You can begin to ease your attention when you feel comfortable and open your eyes and wiggle those beautiful fingers and toes and perhaps give your body a little stretch. I would like to thank Jerry again for sharing this message of connection, of reunion, of belonging, and truly living the Kintsugi spirit. Jerry, we love you and keep rippling something worth rippling into the world.